Welcome back to Spoonful of Sugar. Here is part two of two in our two-part series of Pharmacology of Mood Disorders hosted by MS3 Bilal Rana. Before I let you go to the episode, I have to remind you to apply to our student board if you haven't already and you're interested in joining our team. Please visit spoonfulofsugar.org slash apply. Hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome again to Spoonful of Sugar, where we break down complex medical topics into bite-sized pieces for your success. I'm your host, Bilal Rana, and OMS3 at Western U, and today we are finally wrapping up on our lengthy discussion of mood disorders with this episode focusing on bipolar pharmacology. So that would be mood stabilizers and antipsychotics. Good job for making it this far. Let's finish strong. So by way of review, let's quickly talk about the features of bipolar disorder. It's the dig fast criteria, distractibility, impulsivity, grandiosity, flight of ideas, activity increase, sleep deficit, and talkativeness. And what better way to start than by talking about mood stabilizers, specifically lithium, which is a cation. I know that might not sound very important, but I want you to plant the seed. It'll help us remember something about its side effect profile. For the purposes of board examinations, the most high yield thing you're going to need to know about lithium is its side effect profile. Just a word of caution, there's a lot of stuff. So don't be discouraged if you don't memorize this right away. It's going to take a lot of time and repetition. The first concept I want to talk about is a more general one. It's called the therapeutic index. You're going to want to know this for board exams, so I figured since it's relevant here, we would talk about it. So what is the therapeutic index? It is a ratio, and this ratio compares the concentration at which a drug is therapeutic versus the concentration at which it becomes toxic. Now, how is the therapeutic index calculated? It is calculated by taking the LD50 over the ED50. The LD50 is the median lethal dose. In other words, it is the concentration of the drug at which 50% of the testing population is killed. And by contrast, the ED50 is the median effective dose. In other words, this is the concentration at which 50% of the tested population receives the therapeutic benefits of the drug. So knowing the mathematics behind the therapeutic index, would you want a higher therapeutic index or a lower therapeutic index? So you would want a higher therapeutic index because recall the formula is LD50 over ED50. So if you have a high therapeutic index, that means the LD50 must have been really high or vice versa, the ED50 must have been really low. And what that essentially means is it's going to take a lot of medication for it to even produce remotely a lethal effect. And that's what we want. The problem with lithium is that it has a narrow therapeutic index. So we need to monitor this drug carefully. And that is why the side effect profile is particularly high yield, especially for the purposes of board examinations. So now let's begin our discussion of the side effect profile of lithium. I want to first talk about toxicity. So what would you notice in the setting of acute lithium toxicity? You would notice GI symptoms. So we're thinking nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. This is in the acute setting. But what about chronic lithium toxicity? What would you expect there? Neurologic symptoms. So you would see tremors, ataxia and confusion. There is also an endocrine-related side effect. Do you know which side effect I'm talking about? Hypothyroidism. So lithium is known for causing hypothyroidism. Can you recall some of the symptoms? So you would see things like weight gain, hair loss or thin hair, dry skin, constipation, what would thyroid function tests show you? Thyroid function tests will show you an elevated TRH, TSH, and lower T4. There's a dysfunction in the thyroid not producing enough T4, and so upstream in the anterior pituitary and the hypothalamus, you will notice a compensatory increase. 
Lithium is also notorious for various kinds of renal dysfunction, two of which have to do with drug-drug interactions and one of which is purely to lithium alone. Let's talk about the one that just happens with lithium. Which side effect am I referring to here? So I'm referring to nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. And fundamentally, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus is a decline in the kidney's ability to utilize ADH. And so if you can't utilize ADH, aka antidiuretic hormone, you are not going to be absorbing that much water, so a lot of it is going to be excreted in the urine. Now what about the side effects pertaining to drug-drug interactions? Which two classes of drugs do you really want to avoid when taking lithium? So the highest yield ones to note are thiazide diuretics and NSAIDs. Let's first talk about thiazide diuretics. The way I like to think about this is by remembering the mechanism of action for thiazide diuretics. So what do they do? So thiazide diuretics block the sodium chloride co-transporter at the distal convoluted tubule. And as the old saying goes, where salt goes, water flows. So now salt is trapped in the lumen of the kidneys. Therefore, the water is going to stick with the sodium and go out into the urine. And this is a favorable side effect if you're trying to relieve volume overload. However, in the setting of lithium use, this may not be favorable. Now that you don't have sodium being reabsorbed, remember that sodium is an alkali metal, it's a cation, lithium is also a cation, so now you have this charge imbalance. So what's going to end up happening is you have this compensatory increase in cation absorption in other parts of the kidney. So you'll have more sodium reabsorption, but in addition to that, you will also have increased lithium absorption. And this is what contributes to the toxicity. And if you recall from earlier when I mentioned that I'm going to plant the seed of lithium being a cation, this is one of the reasons why. The other reason is due to its interaction with NSAIDs. So recall, like sodium, lithium is a cation. So they are going to share a number of similarities, one of which is that sodium and lithium can both be easily excreted by the urine. In fact, lithium is hardly metabolized by the kidneys, it's largely excreted. And because it is largely excreted, in order to prevent toxicity, we want to make sure that the kidneys are filtering properly. So the problem with NSAIDs is that they compromise this function. So recall the cyclooxygenase pathway. So you have the cyclooxygenase, which can help the creation of prostaglandins. And what this does is it dilates the afferent arterioles. Remember, not the efferent, that has to do with angiotensin 2, which constricts the efferent arterioles. So you dilate the afferent arterioles with prostaglandins. That increases the renal blood flow, increases the GFR, increases the filtration. So the problem with NSAIDs is that they have activity against cyclooxygenase, which by extension means less prostaglandins, which means less afferent vasodilation. So by extension, more constriction, therefore less renal blood flow, less GFR, less filtration, and consequently less excretion of lithium. Now in addition to NSAIDs, there are a number of other drugs that are also notorious for being nephrotoxic, which can then affect the excretion of lithium. This is lower yield for the purposes of examinations, but can you think of some of these other drugs? So some other drugs to look out for, and again, this is lower yield. You have tetracyclines, metronidazole, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and calcium channel blockers. So those are some other drugs in addition to NSAIDs that can perpetuate the excess lithium in the body. And the last side effect board examiners want you to know has to do with pregnancy. Do you know which side effect this is? So this would be Epstein's anomaly. What is Epstein's anomaly? So it is a congenital cardiac defect characterized by a downwardly displaced tricuspid valve. By extension, this would result in an enlarged right atrium. As a bonus, let's do some cardio tie-in. 
what kind of a murmur would you expect on cardiac auscultation? So I'll give you a hint. Uh, you would expect to see tricuspid regurgitation. So what murmur is associated with tricuspid regurgitation? A hollow systolic murmur. And what two other cardiac defects are also associated with hollow systolic murmurs? Mitral regurgitation and ventricular septal defect. Now, if you notice by now in my episodes, I like to do a lot of these tie-ins because it's really easy to just look at a fact like Epstein's anomaly and just kind of leave it at that. But then when you see a question and they go that extra step on board examinations or on your practice exams, suddenly it gets a little bit more tricky. So constantly making these connections between other subjects is going to net you a lot of points on exams. So as a bonus, a little bit more difficult of a question, knowing the side effects associated with lithium, what kind of tests would you order before prescribing somebody lithium? So you would want to check for pregnancy if they are female. Recall we just talked about Epstein's anomaly. Remember we talked about hypothyroidism, so you want to check thyroid function tests. And there is a whole laundry list of renal problems associated with lithium. And so you would want to check their creatinine levels. And that is all for just one of the drugs. I know it's a lot. We're going to be moving on to valproate, also an antiepileptic, but it does have a role in bipolar disorder for treatment. First things first, what is the mechanism of action of valproate? So it has two mechanisms of action. The first is that it is a sodium channel inactivator, and the second, GABA transaminase inactivation. And now, valproate also has an interaction with another enzyme, or rather a class of enzymes. Do you know which enzymes I'm referring to? The P450 system. Recall that the P450 system is abundant in the liver, and it helps metabolize drugs. And as you've probably learned in your classes or your board studies, there are a good list of drugs that can induce P450. There are those that inhibit, and there are some drugs that are required that require P450 to metabolize. Now, what does valproate do to the P450 system? Valproate is an inhibitor of P450. So you can imagine if there are drugs that require the P450 system to metabolize, and then you tack on valproate to it, it can cause those drugs to raise to toxic levels. The P450 system and all the drugs that are involved in it is something that is honestly learned over the entire year of your board studying. You know, you'll learn it once, you'll forget it the next time, and then you'll learn of a new drug that induces or inhibits P450. It's a headache, but don't feel pressured to remember it all at once. Just take baby steps over the course of the year. You'll learn more drugs. You're therefore more likely to get a question right about the P450 system the next time. And of course, a discussion of drugs is incomplete unless we talk about the side effect profile. For valproate, aka valproic acid, you can see it as both. There are two main classes of side effects that you're going to want to know. So the first are the GI side effects, and then the other are the neuro side effects. Let's first talk about the GI side effects. What are some mild side effects that you notice? So you can observe nausea, vomiting, and then you can also observe an increase in appetite, which by extension can cause weight gain. What about the more serious GI side effects? Hepatotoxicity. Now, you don't need to know what I'm about to tell you. We were talking about the P450 system earlier. Valproate acid is mostly metabolized by glucuronidation and mitochondrial beta-oxidation, which if you're a biochem nerd, you know that mostly happens in the liver. So if valproate kind of goes up to toxic levels, you can imagine it's going to become toxic in the liver where it's supposed to be metabolized, hence the hepatotoxicity. And then there is one more serious GI side effect. Which one am I referring to? Pancreatitis. The mechanism for this one is unknown. It's just something that you're going to have to memorize. 
Now let's move on to the neurologic side effects. So what are some neurologic side effects that you can expect to see in somebody taking valproate? So the big and more common one will be tremors. The other problem I wouldn't really call a side effect, more so I'd call a major consequence, and that would be neural tube defects. And you can imagine this occurs congenitally, so you would want to caution the use of valproate in a pregnant population. So just as earlier, when I talked about the test you want to order for somebody taking lithium, what test would you want to order for somebody taking valproate? Right, you know, pregnancy test, you want to make sure they're not pregnant. We just talked about neural tube defects, and then we talked about the GI side effects, namely the big one being hepatotoxicity, so LFTs, your liver function tests. Now that we're done with valproate and lithium, these are the two highest yield drugs you're going to want to know for the setting of bipolar disorder. The next two drugs are lower yield in reference to mood stabilization and higher yield in their roles as antiepileptics. However, since these do also play a role in the treatment of bipolar disorder, we're going to go over these drugs just for completeness sake. And the two drugs we're going to talk about are carbamazepine and lamotrigine. Or lamotrigine, I don't know how you pronounce it. So when would carbamazepine be used in the setting of bipolar disorder? So carbamazepine is used in the setting of acute mania and in the prevention of acute mania. Later on in this episode, we're going to learn that antipsychotics basically do the same thing, so we end up using those mainly, so carbamazepine is going to take a backseat. But since we are talking about carbamazepine, let's talk a little bit about what it does and what its side effects are. And oh boy, there are a lot of side effects. So first off, what is the mechanism of action? Carbamazepine is a sodium channel inactivator. So this is in contrast to valproate that is not only a sodium channel inactivator, but also a GABA transaminase inactivator. Carbamazepine is only sodium channel inactivation. And what is it known for treating other than acute mania and, of course, um, using it as an anti-epileptic drug? What else, what special condition is it known to treat? So it is first line for trigeminal neuralgia. This is that sharp pain in the cranial nerve 5 distribution. And what is the suspected etiology of trigeminal neuralgia? Impingement of the cranial nerve by a blood vessel or an aberrant blood vessel, whichever. So long as you know blood vessel impingement, that'll probably get you the right answer. The other thing you want to know is carbamazepine's role in P450. So again, we talked about a lot of drugs being either inducers, inhibitors, or being metabolized by P450. Where does carbamazepine stand? Carbamazepine is a P450 inducer. So valproate's an inhibitor, carbamazepine is an inducer. All right, side effects of carbamazepine. Brace yourself, there are a metric ton. The way I like to d divide these is into five different categories. And the word carbamazepine has five syllables, so it helps me remember five categories. The five categories are balance, dermatology, endocrinology, hematology, and neurology. Conveniently broken down into alphabetical order, these five different categories. So let's start with balance. So what balance-related side effects would you expect to see with carbamazepine? So that would be diplopia and ataxia. The ataxia part makes sense. That's your loss of balance and coordination. The diplopia isn't directly a balance issue, but the way I like to think about it is if you have double vision, then that'll probably cause some issues with balance. Then we have dermatologic side effects. The big one is SJS, Stephen Johnson's syndrome. This is often compared to TEN, toxic epidermal necrolysis. Before we compare the two, let's first talk about what SJS actually is. So what is SJS? So here are the few things that you're going to see. First, it is a painful skin condition that is characterized by bullae that slough off. 
And this sloughing off of bulle is known as the what sign? It's known as a positive Nikolsky sign. Now, how is SGS different from TEN? So TEN refers to when the skin condition covers less than 10% of the body versus SGS when greater than 30% of the body is covered by this skin condition. Anything in between is known as SGS-TEN. So it's a combination of the two. All right, so far so good. Good job, everybody. We're making these connections. Now let's talk about the endocrinology side effects. So what endo side effect is associated with carbamazepine? SIADH, which stands for Syndrome of Inappropriate Secretion of Antidiuretic Hormone. And if you have too much antidiuretic hormone being secreted, you're going to get a lot of water reuptake. What lab value would you expect to see because of this? Hyponatremia. So you might get a question stem, patients taking a bunch of medications, atorvastatin, blah, 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 carbamazepine, you're given a BMP, and you see low sodium, but they're not going to tell you low sodium, they're just going to give you a number like, you know, 129 or something, and you're just going to have to infer that, okay, this hyponatremia is due to the SIADH caused by carbamazepine. Got to create these links. That's how they get you on board examinations. And now we move on to the hematologic complications of carbamazepine. There are three. What are the three complications? So we have DRESS, which is drug rash with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms, agranulocytosis, and aplastic anemia. Let's first begin with DRESS. So what kind of a hypersensitivity reaction is this? This is a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction. Very, very important. It is a delayed drug-induced reaction. So you're going to want to look for a time frame that is somewhere in between 2 to 6 weeks, okay, from the onset of starting the drug. It's not going to happen right away. And what would you expect to see on physical examination? There's a bunch of things. You would see fever, a diffuse rash, and this diffuse rash will have a variety of descriptors. Some call it a morbilliform rash, which means measles-like. And you're probably wondering what the heck does measles look like. It's a macular or maculopapular rash. Some people refer to it even as circular or elliptical, just based off the shape. You can also notice facial edema and lymphadenopathy. Now, I want you to be careful here because you're going to look on the exam and you're going to see diffuse widespread rash and you're going to immediately think, oh my god, that's a type 1 hypersensitivity? Eh, wrong. This is a delayed reaction, happens within 2 to 6 weeks of using the drug. Look for the time of onset. Then we have agranulocytosis. And as I like to do, let's break down the etymology. So agranulocytosis derives from the Greek words, a meaning without, granulocyte, which is a particular kind of white blood cell. And the reason it's called granulocyte is because white blood cells contain granules in its cytoplasm. And then you have osis, meaning condition, which usually refers to a disorder. So agranulocytosis is a condition where you have no blood cells, or rather low blood cells. Now, on your exam, they're not going to tell you agranulocytosis. They wouldn't make it this easy. They're going to give you lab values. And what you're going to want to look for is a diminished white blood cell count. Now, as a bonus, because again, I like to do these bonuses, I like to do these integrations, can you think of some other drugs that also cause agranulocytosis? So here are a few. Gancyclovir, colchicine, PTU, also known as propylthiouracil, methimazole, and clozapine. And we'll talk about clozapine later in this episode. And lastly, for the hematologic complications, we have aplastic anemia. Again, let's break down the word. 
A A means without. Plastic refers to shape. And anemia is a lack of blood. So without shape, lack of blood. And what that essentially means is that the bone marrow is having a difficult time creating a proper shape of an RBC. And structure dictates function. So if you have a poor structural of an RBC, it's like having no RBCs at all. Hence, aplastic anemia. Whew, that was a lot. But we are almost done, so now let's talk about the neurologic side effects. I know earlier we talked about ataxia. I kind of put that in there, the balance category, but it could also be neuro. But there's one really big, high-yield neuro side effect you're going to want to know. And what is that? Again, not so much a side effect, more so a consequence. Neural tube defects. So carbamazepine can also cause neural tube defects. Very, very high yield. All right, and wrapping up mood stabilizers before we move on to antipsychotics, we have lamotrigine, lamotrigine. Again, I don't care. Um, What is lamotrigine's role in bipolar disorder? Lamotrigine is used as a maintenance therapy and only maintenance therapy. Now, what is its mechanism of action? Sodium channel inactivation, just like carbamazepine. Now let's talk about its side effects. So this is um, this we can break down into two categories. We have the dermatologic side effects as well as the ophthalmologic side effects. So first, let's talk about the dermatologic side effects. What are they? So you have the minor one, which is a rash, about 10% of people using lamotrigine experience a rash, but then you have the big one, which is Steven Johnson's slash toxic epidermal necrolysis. We already talked about earlier what that was uh, in our discussion of carbamazepine. And for the eyes, what are the side effects pertaining to that? Just diplopia. And that's it. That's, that's literally all for lamotrigine. Its minor side effect profile makes this a pretty common one to use in clinical practice. We spent so much time talking about lithium, valproic, carbamazepine, and its insane list of side effects. Lamotrigine is pretty mild, so expect to see this a lot in the real world. Now let's move on to the next section on antipsychotics. Let's do a bird's eye view. I want to mention a few important things. First off, these antipsychotics can be divided into first and second generation. It is the second generation that may be used in conjunction with mood stabilizers for maintenance treatment. The first generation can also be used for mood disorders, but only in the setting of acute treatment for something like mania or psychosis. Otherwise, first generation antipsychotics can be used for maintenance treatment of schizophrenia, at least for the purposes of board examinations. But nowadays, the second generation antipsychotics are more used for schizophrenia whereas the first generation are usually used for emergency cases. So let's start off with a question. Can you name some of the first generation antipsychotics? Again, the names of the psych drugs are important, so let's go over them. You probably thought of haloperidol, right? Uh, There's also trifluoperazine, chlorpromazine, thioridazine, and flufenazine, not to be confused with fluoxetine, that's an SSRI, and also not to be confused with phenelzine, that is a MAO-A inhibitor. Another thing to note is that the first-generation antipsychotics are sometimes also referred to as typical antipsychotics, whereas the second generation can be referred to as atypical. Now, what do first-generation antipsychotics treat? Quite a number of things. So we have psychosis, mania, and what about for schizophrenia? Are we treating the positive or negative symptoms? We're treating the positive symptoms. There is also one special condition that first-generation antipsychotics can treat, and that is called Tourette's syndrome. So what is Tourette's syndrome? So it is a condition characterized by the presence of motor and vocal tics for at least a year. So what are these? The motor tics can be pretty obvious. It's just 
shrugging of sh- shoulders, turning of head. It's just these repetitive, involuntary motions. The vocal tics can be a little less obvious, so this can include not just words, but it can include grunts, throat clearing, or even snorting. And then there's a special term, just kind of throwing it in here for fun, but you may see this on board examinations. Sometimes Tourette's has this characteristic trait where people are shouting obscenities just randomly. What, what is the word for that? Coprolalia or coprolalia. Again, my pronunciation can be kind of rough, but that's the term associated with shouting random obscenities. You might see this on exam, so I just thought I'd mention that here. And what is the mechanism of the first-generation antipsychotics? Antagonism of the D2 receptors. Another thing about antipsychotics you should know is that they can be divided into their potency, their high potency and low potency. Really important, the side effect profile will vary based on the potency. So let's first talk about the high potency antipsychotics. Of the antipsychotics that we listed earlier, which of those are the high potencies? Alloperidol, trifluoperazine, and flufenazine. In contrast, the low potency would be chlorpromazine and thyroidazine. Let's first talk about the side effect profile for the high potency first generation, aka typical antipsychotics. We will then talk about the side effect profile for the low potency, and then we'll talk about the side effect profile that is associated with both the high and the low potency. So for right now, let's just look at it separately. There is a set of side effects that you need to know for the high-potency antipsychotics. Do you know what I'm referring to? So these would be the extra-pyramidal symptoms. The high-potency antipsychotics are the most notorious for causing extra-pyramidal symptoms. Now, what are the different extra-pyramidal symptoms? So there's quite a few. Let's start with listing them off. We have acute dystonia, akathisia, Parkinsonian features, aka pseudo-Parkinsonianism, and tardive dyskinesia. Let's go over this one by one. So which of the symptoms that I've mentioned happen within the first few hours? So this would be acute Dystonia. And again, I like to break down the terms. The word dis meaning irregular, tonia referring to muscle tone, aka contraction, and acute referring to the time frame because it happens within hours. So it's a immediate or acute onset of an irregular muscle contraction. Now, what are some examples that you can think of that would reflect acute dystonia? So some examples are abnormal posture, skewed eyes, a wide open jaw. In fact, I was on YouTube and I looked up acute dystonia and one of the most common ones, videos that I saw, one of the most common symptoms was a wide open jaw. The next set of symptoms occur within days to weeks. The first one being akathisia. What is akathisia? Akathisia is defined as restlessness. And if we were to break down the etymology in Greek, you have a without and kathazane meaning to sit. So it's like an inability to sit or an inability to sit still, if you will. And around the same time frame, you can also have Parkinsonian features. You know, this is your cogwheel rigidity, your shuffling gait, your pill rolling tremor. Since I'm here, what is cogwheel rigidity? So more broadly, cogwheel rigidity is a form of muscular stiffness, and you typically see this through range of motion, be it active or passive range of motion. So the limbs will be making these small jerky movements that are intermittent and almost ratchet-like. And then lastly, we have tardive dyskinesia. This actually happens over the course of months. To break down the words, 
Tardive kind of sounds like tardy, meaning late, so that can help you remember the onset. This meaning irregular. Kinesia referring to movement, which is different than dystonia, which is an irregular muscle contraction. So in other words, you put it together, it's a late onset of irregular movement. And what are some examples of tardive dyskinesia you can expect to see on physical exam? Some examples would be lip smacking, tongue protrusions, rapid blinking, grimacing, or frowning. So now all of these conditions, all of these side effects actually have treatments for them. The treatments for all these are a bit lower yield for step one, but they are higher yield for step two. So I thought I'd just meet in the middle and just kind of briefly go over them. So for acute dystonia to treat it, you would use either benzotropine or diphenhydramine. For akathisia or Parkinsonian features, you would use, oh sorry, for akathisia, you would use benzotropine, benzodiazepines, and beta blockers. Whereas for Parkinsonian features, you would use benzotropine or amantadine. And for tardive dyskinesia, you would use valbenazine or deuterabenazine. Now moving right along to the low-potency first-generation antipsychotics, um, I like to refer to these as the distant relative of the tricyclic antidepressant, um, and that is because of the side effect profile, which includes what side effects? So being that they are the quote-unquote distant relative of TCAs, at least that's how I refer to them as, you could see anti-muscarinic effects, anti-histaminic effects, anti-alphanergic effects, those three, right? The ones that they constantly throw out and they kind of insidiously put in on your exams, yeah, those effects. So if we were to find that somebody is using, say, thioridazine and they have sedation, which, which of the three effects would you expect? So it would be antihistaminic. Now, if you were to see dry mouth and constipation, what would you expect? You would expect it to be an anti-muscarinic effect, right? And for anti-alpha effects, uh, what is the main one that we have to look out for? Orthostatic hypotension. Now, as a bonus, I'm going to do some cardio tie-in. What would happen to the heart rate in the setting of orthostatic hypotension? So the heart rate would increase. And if you remember the formulas, you have cardiac output, which equals heart rate times stroke volume. And we have blood pressure, which equals cardiac output times the systemic vascular resistance. So let's look at that blood pressure formula. So blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. Your blood pressure is no longer increasing because of the anti-alpha effects. So by extension, you can expect that the cardiac output would also decrease. And we know that cardiac output is equal to heart rate times stroke volume. And we can't tolerate that low of a cardiac output, so something needs to increase. Clearly, the blood pressure isn't. Therefore, the heart rate must increase to compensate. By the way, all of this is different from vasovagal syncope, also known as reflex syncope. So that is usually due to a specific emotional or environmental trigger, activates the parasympathetic nervous system, and what that does is it causes a combination of low blood pressure and a low heart rate. And that does not compensate, and so that's what results in fainting. And what are the other side effects of chlorpromazine and thyroridazine? Uh, specifically, I'm referring to the unique ones, the ones that you probably saw in Sketchy. So these are the ophthalmologic symptoms you have on chlorpromazine, the presence of corneal deposits, and on thyroidazine you have retinal deposits. So you can remember the C for chlorpromazine as corneal deposits. Um, another mnemonic, again, I, I like to do my terrible mnemonics. Remember earlier I called these the distant relatives of TCAs. So if you break down the letters of TCA, you have thyroidazine, chlorpromazine, and the A stands for antipsychotics, so I call these TC antipsychotics, TCAs. Terrible, I know, but hey, if you remember it, it might help. Now let's talk about the side effects that occur with both the high potency and the low potency, but keep in mind that of the drugs, the high potency are the most likely to cause the following side effects. 
So we can divide these into three categories. We have the endocrine side effects, the neurologic side effects, as well as the cardio side effects. What endo side effect are we most worried about? I'll give you a hint. It has to do with the mechanism of action of these drugs. So the mechanism of action is the D2 antagonism, and this could cause the endocrine complication of hyperprolactinemia. Later on in this episode, I'll talk a little bit more about what hyperprolactinemia is. Super easy to remember that a drug has hyperprolactinemia, a lot harder to remember what it actually is. Now what about the neurologic side effects? Now this is, this is the big one. NMS, or neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So this is a little bit different than serotonin syndrome. You'll have your fever, tachycardia, hypertension, agitation, diaphoresis. Um, but what are the key things that you want to look out for in NMS compared to serotonin syndrome? So you're more likely to see rigidity, elevated creatinine kinase, elevated white blood cell count. You, you will not see diarrhea or clonus. In fact, if you are really stuck in between NMS and serotonin syndrome, if you see clonus, put your money on serotonin syndrome. And then lastly, we have the cardio side effects. So what big cardio side effect are we worried about? QT prolongation, which can lead to torsades. All right, and now let's finish off with the second generation antipsychotics, aka the atypicals. So could you name some of the second generation atypical antipsychotics? So we have the quote-unquote apines. So you have your olanzapine, clozapine, quetiapine, and then you have your idones, zepracidone, loracidone, risperidone, and then you have aripiprazole, not to be confused with omeprazole. Just because both have prazoles does not make it the same thing. Omeprazole is a PPI, aripiprazole is an atypical antipsychotic. These are the ones that you give in conjunction with bipolar treatment if you notice psychotic features or other severe features such as aggression or multiple hospitalizations for psychiatric reasons. They can also be used as an adjunct to typical antidepressant treatment if it's treatment refractory. Now what do these second generation antipsychotics treat? So we have the psychosis and the mania. Now what about for schizophrenia? Are we treating the positive or the negative symptoms? We're treating both actually. Although that being said, when we think of atypical antipsychotics, we typically think of it as the treatment for the negative ones, because if we're going to treat the positive symptoms, we might as well use a first-generation antipsychotic. And the way I like to remember this is that second generation has a two in its name, so there's two types of symptoms for schizophrenia that it treats. This would be both the positive and the negative. It can, in fact, also treat Tourette's. There is a specific antipsychotic that does this of the ones that I listed. Do you know which one that would be? Risperidone. Right. And then lastly, uh, these second-generation atypical antipsychotics, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, can also be used for treatment-resistant depression as well as OCD, but these are on the lower yield side for the purposes of step one. Now, what is the mechanism of action of second-generation atypical antipsychotics? So we have D2 antagonism, just like the first generation, except not as strong. And in addition, we also have 5-HT2 antagonism, so serotonin antagonist activity. This is kind of important to know because this is really what separates it from the first generation. Now let's talk about side effects. So this is where it gets pretty confusing because the side effects can vary depending on the type of antipsychotic that you're using. So it will vary from drug to drug. So first I'm going to list off some of the common ones. So you have your antihistaminic, anti-alpha, adrenergic, and anti-muscarinic. So these three are showing up again. We had the TCAs which first did this, and then we have the low potency first generation, and now we have the second generation antipsychotics. So these three classes of drugs are notorious for having antihistaminic, anti-alpha, adrenergic, and anti-muscarinic effects. I don't want to talk more about it now because we really uh, hit on this topic a lot already. And then 
Cardio side effects. What cardio side effect are we worried about? QT prolongation. Now, if there's one antipsychotic of the second generation in particular that we were worried about causing QT prolongation, which one would it be? Ziprasidone. This one is more, most likely to cause QT prolongation. And then we have metabolic dysfunction. Now, when I'm saying metabolic dysfunction, it's a pretty vague term. In the context of second-gen antipsychotics, what am I referring to? So there are three things that you can look for. Uh, one of the biggest ones is weight gain. And then the other two would be hyperglycemia and dyslipidemia. So on your question stem, you want to look for, uh, look for a past medical history of diabetes, for example. It's such a common condition people have, so not a lot of people care to know it. And especially in the setting of psych, people often forget this, but this is easy points missed. If you see a question stem talking about diabetes and you're talking about prescribing medication, you probably want to be cautious of the second-gen antipsychotics because of this metabolic dysfunction. Now, of the second-generation antipsychotics, which are the most likely to cause metabolic dysfunction? This would be olanzapine and clozapine. These are the highest risk for metabolic dysfunction. This one is pretty high yield to know. And then, which are the least likely to cause metabolic dysfunction? Ziprasidone, loracidone, and aripiprazole. And then kind of in the middle, you have risperidone and quetiapine, where quetiapine specifically is known to increase triglyceride levels. This is really low yield for the purposes of board examination, so I wouldn't worry too much about this. So we mentioned clozapine, or sometimes pronounced clozapine. Again, don't care. This one's a really important one to know. So this one is prescribed to people who have failed two trials of antipsychotics. That's something you need to know for step two. Uh, for step one, you don't really need to know that. But just by knowing that fact, it can help you remember that this is the big gun antipsychotics. Therefore, it has the most serious side effects. So what are the three big side effects we are worried about in patients using clozapine? Neutropenia, myocarditis, and seizures. This is pretty serious stuff. So neutropenia, uh, what would you expect to see on a CBC? Low white blood cell count, good. And for myocarditis, what kind of symptoms would you expect to see? Your typical stuff, chest pain, shortness of breath, exertional dys dyspnea. It's very broad stuff. Myocarditis isn't really easy to uh, figure out, but you're going to see these very nonspecific symptoms. But if you see a clear identifier like clozapine, you can pretty safely guess that it's myocarditis, and then the seizures. Now let's talk about risperidone. Now there are two main side effects that we are worried about when it comes to risperidone, and what are they? So the first one to worry about are the extrapyramidal symptoms. Extrapyramidal symptoms can be caused by second generation as well as first generation, but for second generation, it's not as big of a risk. Unfortunately, of the second generation, if we had to pick one drug that is the highest risk for extrapyramidal symptoms, it would be risperidone. And the way I like to remember this is that instead of pronouncing it risperidone, I call it repsperidone, and if you spell that out, R-E-P-S, E-P-S, extrapyramidal symptoms. Terrible mnemonic, hey, if it works, it works. And the other side effect of risperidone is the endo side effect. You know which one that is? hyperprolactinemia. So something to note is that you need to recall that high-potency first-generation antipsychotics, low-potency first-generation antipsychotics, and second-generation antipsychotics, they all cause hyperprolactinemia. And remember that it's the high-potency antipsychotics that are most likely to cause it, followed by low-potency, followed by second-generation. But again, if we were to pick one of the second-generation that's most likely to cause it, it would be risperidone. And since I like integrations, we're going to talk a little bit about hyperprolactinemia. Again, it's easy to remember, but the exact mechanisms are a little bit more difficult. So to learn this, we're going to have to go to our imaginary whiteboard. So recall, we have the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis. Let's start off by talking about GnRH. 
aka gonadotropin releasing hormone, which is which comes from the hypothalamus. This normally goes to the anterior pituitary, which increases the secretion of FSH and LH. Now, GnRH in particular is inhibited by prolactin, and prolactin is typically inhibited by dopamine. So now when you put risperidone in a mix and you have D2 antagonism, the dopamine is no longer inhibiting the prolactin, which means the prolactin is free to inhibit GnRH. And if we're inhibiting GnRH, we have low FSH and low LH. Knowing this, what kinds of side effects would you expect to see? So let's break this down by gender. So in females, you would expect to see galactorrhea, so increased milky discharge from the nipples, as well as disturbances in the menstrual cycle. So recall with the menstrual cycle, right in the middle, you have the surge in FSH and LH. Remember now that because we have dopamine antagonism, we have excess prolactin inhibiting GnRH, so now we're no longer having that FSH and LH spike in the middle, so that's the menstrual disturbance. And for males, what happens? So for males, you would expect to see sexual dysfunction. So now that we have hyperprolactinemia, less GnRH, less LH, and LH typically goes to the Leydig cells, which is responsible for the production of testosterone. So now we have less testosterone, so more sexual dysfunction. And if you're curious, if you're wondering about the FSH, that normally goes to the Sertoli cells, which is responsible for spermatogenesis. Okay, two more unique things, and then we're going to wrap up with this section. So what is unique about the mechanism of action of aripiprazole? So aripiprazole is a partial D2 agonist. Remember that antipsychotics are D2 antagonists. Aripiprazole has some partial D2 agonist activity. And what is unique about quetiapine and loracidone? So this specifically has to do more with treatment, probably lower yield for step one, higher yield for step two. Uh, Quetiapine and loracidone are often used in the setting of acute depression associated with bipolar disorder. And with that, we finally move on to these scenarios. Give yourselves a pat on the back. I know my episodes can be a bit on the longer side, just a bit. Um, So for now, we're only going to have three scenarios. I mean, they're going to have multiple questions, one of which is a similar question from part one of the mood disorders episode. And the other two scenarios are brand new. And let's start with number one, a 27-year-old male brought by the police to the emergency department, wandering the streets, talking rapidly about his plans to create stars and galaxies with the hope of providing the world with an endless supply of energy. The urine drug screen comes out negative. Past medical history reveals ongoing treatment for depression diagnosed two weeks ago, and labs drawn are only remarkable for an elevated creatinine of 2.0. So the first question, what is the mechanism of action for the best maintenance treatment for this condition? Yeah, I I hit you with a multi-layered one. The board examiners will do that, so I figured I'd try it here. So the mechanism of action for the best maintenance treatment would be sodium channel inactivation with GABA transaminase inactivation. So the drug I'm referring to is valproate. And what's going on here is that we have an SSRI-induced mania, which is evidenced by the past medical history of ongoing treatment for depression. So here you can infer that this patient's being treated with an SSRI, but they have underlying bipolar disorder. And now another thing about this question is you might have thought, okay, well, if this is bipolar disorder, why aren't we using lithium? And the reason for that is the elevated creatinine of 2.0. In this question, I explicitly mentioned that it's elevated. Board examiners aren't going to tell you that. It's going to be your responsibility to open the lab values and read them for yourself. Speaking of normal values, if you had to guess, uh, what is the normal range for creatinine? Again, you don't need to memorize this. It'll just be on the lab values, but I thought I'd just ask, what's the normal range? 0.6 to 1.2. 
So I've had this issue a lot where I'll see a creatinine of 1.6 on a test and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. But that's my fault for not reading the lab values. Easy question, got it wrong. So I don't want you to make that mistake. Really get into the habit of reading the lab values and then you'll get to a point where you can comfortably see whether a lab value is abnormal or not without even having to look at that. So circling back just to hammer this point, this elevated creatinine is indicative of renal dysfunction, and we learned extensively of lithium's effects on the kidney, and so we were not prescribed lithium here. So follow-up question, now that you know that the medication being prescribed is valproate, what tests will you order before prescribing this medication? So you would order LFTs. Recall that valproate is associated with hepatotoxicity, so you would want to monitor their liver function to see if they can tolerate the medication. Normally, you could also order a pregnancy test, but if you recall from this question set, the patient is male, so a pregnancy test is not required. Now, I, I do want to be mindful here. You know, now that we are learning about gender-affirming care, if this was a transgender male, yes, you could but board exams aren't going to want you to learn about that as of 2023. That might be something that you'll have to learn for the future or for your clinical practice. Another note, just a test-taking pearl. Here I gave the creatinine value and I didn't give any other BMP or CMP values. So normally on an exam, the creatinine value will be buried under a whole bunch of other labs and it's going to look very overwhelming. For the purposes of this podcast, I simplified it and I just told you that we have an elevated creatinine Again, the board examiners will not do that. They'll have no hesitation hiding the lab values uh, in between a bunch of other junk. So it's going to be your job to stay focused and really look for those abnormal lab values. Now let's move on to question number two. We have a 20-year-old male presenting to the clinic with symptoms of fatigue. The patient states that most days he feels disinterested in playing basketball and reports difficulty concentrating on his chemistry projects. Upon further questioning, he states that he has not always felt this way. As last week, he was able to pull five consecutive all-nighters for his other classes with two hours of sleep, all while hitting a new PR at the gym. After prescribing appropriate pharmacotherapy, what medication or medications would you instruct this patient to avoid? So another multi-layered question. The answer here would be NSAIDs. So this patient is experiencing bipolar disorder. Now, is this bipolar type 1 or type 2? Yeah, this is type 2. This is hypomania. It's not as severe. And the mainstay treatment would be lithium, but recall that lithium is excreted by the kidneys. So in order to enhance that excretion, you want to make sure that you're not giving anything that would mess up the kidneys in any way. In this case, NSAIDs would do exactly that. We talked about the cyclooxygenase, the prostaglandins, and how this would cause a constriction of the afferent arterial and downstream leading to a decreased GFR, which would decrease the excretion of lithium. And this is why NSAIDs are complicated and, again, lower yield, but there are other drugs that can also affect the metabolism or rather the excretion of lithium. Do you know which one those are? Right, you got the tetracyclines, metronidazole, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and CCBs. Again, not as high yield, but for completeness sake, I put it there. So now a few weeks later, a patient comes back he, for a follow-up appointment, and he mentions that his wife, who is G1P0, is experiencing similar symptoms of hypomania and wants to try this medication. What would you advise this patient? So two things. One, of course, you don't want to share medications. That's kind of the elephant in the room, the obvious thing. But regarding side effects, what side effect are you most worried about? Epstein's anomaly. Again, Epstein's anomaly, downwardly displaced tricuspid valve, enlarged right atrium, tricuspid regurgitation, holosystolic murmur. As a bonus, let's do a quick integration. Um, I mentioned G1P0, and if you haven't gone to your OB-GYN classes yet, this might be a little bit confusing. So the G is gravita from Latin gravitas, meaning pregnant, or gravis meaning heavy. This refers to how many times the patient is pregnant. So, for example, if they're G3, they've been pregnant three times. And then you have para from the Latin pario, meaning to bring forth or to bear. Outcomes may vary. Now, there's a lot of numbers that can come after P. The first number, and this is the most important one, is how many full-term pregnancies. 
So in this patient was G1P0. So this patient's on their first pregnancy and they haven't had an outcome of that pregnancy. Now as a bonus, here's a bonus integration, mostly for Comlex. For those of you who have listened, who've already taken the Comlex or those of you who are about to, um, it's notorious for asking these really, really strange questions that are honestly beyond what I believe is the scope of step one. But just in the 1% chance, I'm going to throw it in here. So the normal notation is G1, P1, G1, whatever, whatever, like just the four things. But there's also like a second, third, and a fourth number. So the second number is how many premature babies. Third number is how many abortions or miscarriages. And the fourth number is how many children are living at the time. So for example, G3, P2002, three pregnancies, two full-term deliveries, zero premature deliveries, zero abortions, two living kids. G4, P3013, four pregnancies, three went to full term, zero premature, one abortion, three living kids. It's mostly for complex. Thanks for entertaining me. Now let's go back to our last scenario. So we have a 34-year-old man brought to the ED after being found wandering around the streets talking very rapidly about his plans to build an elevator onto the moon. So similar situation as the first scenario. He strongly insists that he's the right one for the job and that everyone else are intellectually challenged goblins. He reports sleeping 90 minutes daily and spending his emergency funds on parts for this project. He was hospitalized four months ago for aggression towards his wife and had similar episodes of aggressive behavior over the past three years towards other family members. What maintenance treatment is indicated for this patient? So this is pretty serious bipolar type 1 with other severe features so we're going to use mood stabilizers in conjunction with antipsychotics so the severe illness in this case we saw elements of psychosis aka the delusions he's being aggressive he's had past hospitalization so this is when you're really going to tack on that antipsychotic now if you had to pick a mood stabilizer which one would you give so you'd probably give lithium that's the mainstay right? Uh, nothing in this question time suggests that they have a renal dysfunction or any issues with the thyroid or it's a man not pregnant. And uh, what antipsychotic would you give? So remember when I said that the second generation antipsychotics were the ones that you give in conjunction? So you would give the second generation antipsychotics. Now let's narrow it down even further. Which of the second generation would you give? you probably want to start off with the ones with the least side effects. So you'd look at second generation, such as quetiapine or aripeprazole. Recall that the first generation is mainly used for emergency cases. Where in this question, I'm specifically talking about maintenance treatment, so we're going to look at second generation here. Now, follow-up question. What immediate side effects would you be worried about if you prescribed the medication indicated for the acute treatment of asthmatic symptoms? If that was a terribly worded question, I'm going to rephrase that. What immediate side effects would you be worried about if you gave them first-generation antipsychotics? So first-generation antipsychotics are most known for causing extrapyramidal symptoms, the most immediate one being acute dystonia. Remember, this meaning irregular, tonia meaning muscle contraction, and so that's where you have your abnormal posture, skewed eyes, wide open jaw, and Bonus, low yield for step one, high yield for step two. How would you treat it? Benztropine or diphenhydramine. And that is all. We're going to do one final really quick review. So we have dig fast, distractibility, impulsivity, grandiosity, flight of ideas, activity increase, sleep deficit, and talkativeness. We talked about mood stabilizers. So this would be lithium, valproate, carbamazepine, and lamotrigine, with lithium and valproate being particularly high yield. Lithium is known to have some acute and chronic effects, aka the GI and neuro effects respectively, as well as hypothyroidism, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, and it has interactions with thiazide diuretics, NSAIDs, as well as a bunch of other drugs, and can cause Epstein's anomaly. Valproate, so it has a double mechanism of action with sodium and GABA inactivation, sodium channel inactivation and GABA transaminase inactivation, has side effects that are GI and neuro-related. So the hepatotoxicity, pancreatitis, and then we have the tremors, neural tube defects. 
Carbamazepine had a long, long, long list of effects. So you had your balance effects, dermatologic, endo, heme, as well as your neuroside effects. And lamotrigine had the most mild side effect out of all of them. So that one's commonly used in clinical practice. Then we have the antipsychotics broken down into first and second generation, where the first ones were further broken down into high and low potency. High potency, you got to look for extrapyramidal symptoms. Low potency, you're looking at the uh, side effects similar to the ones that TCAs have, so your antimuscarinic, antihistaminic, and anti-alpha adrenergic, both of which can cause endocrinological, neuro, as well as cardio side effects. And then lastly, you had the second generation side effects. These also had the antihistamine, anti-alpha, anti-muscarinic effects. QT prolongation, just like um, the first generation ones with ziprasidone mostly causing this. Remember that olanzapine and clozapine are the big guns, with clozapine being the biggest gun of the big guns, causing neutropenia, myocarditis, and seizures. Risperidone of the second generation, most known for its extrapyramidal symptoms and hyperprolactinemia, and we talked about the mechanism behind that. And lastly, we talked about arapiprazole having partial D2 agonism, as well as quetiapine and loracidone being used in the setting of acute depression associated with bipolar disorder. And thank you for tuning in to Spoonful of Sugar. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please visit our website at spoonfulofsugar.org and post them under the link for this episode. I know my episodes have been on the longer side because I like to do these integrations, so if you like this style, please let us know, but if not, we can definitely simplify this for next time. Good luck with your studying, and remember that if you ever have an SOS moment, Spoonful of Sugar is always here to help the medicine go down.